Okay, so find a comfortable meditation posture where you feel supported and your physical posture is upright but also relaxed. And in this practice of karuna, this is the compassion practice, the object of the meditation and all of the brahmiharas is something having to do with the person, with the human condition. And um, and then there are layers beyond that of the practice. So the first part of this is to be in touch with yourself or someone you know, or it could even be a group of individuals that is suffering. And that is the object of the of the meditation is the person and their suffering. And if it's ourself, that's that is um perfectly okay with this practice. So we can bring an image of that person or ourselves to mind. Could be either in the situation that's causing the suffering or it could be a more neutral image. And then the next kind of layer of the onion of the practice is to have phrases that have a phrase for, for this practice that really supports your wishes for the person. And it's important to remember that these practices are being done to purify our own heart. They aren't, if they have some effect on the person, that's a beautiful thing. But we're not assuming that that's really what's happening. It's so that we can actually be present in the face of suffering and that our heart doesn't have to shut down or in contact with that either in ourselves or someone we know or the world. So we're really purifying our own heart. So the phrase might be, if it's ourself, it might be something about wishing the suffering would end, like may the suffering soon end, or if it's someone else, may your suffering soon end. Or it may be something that's more about being able to be with the suffering. May I find the resources to tolerate the suffering? Or may I find a way to be at peace with this situation? And we can customize the phrase for something that really fits for our situation that's meaningful to us. And it may change for different situations. So then in relation to the person who's suffering, we gently say that phrase internally. And the phrase is not the object. Often we get, uh, it can be become to where the phrase itself replaces our actual contact with the person suffering, which is the object. So the phrases are just a support, just like counting with samatha or noting with vipassana. They aren't the object and they aren't meant to replace the object. So again, visualizing the person, 
and saying the phrase internally. May you find a way to find peace with the situation. May your suffering soon end. Whatever feels right. And then there's the potential as we stay with the practice to actually feel a sense in our hearts of compassion. Doesn't have to happen. We can still do the practice without that arising, and that's why it's a practice. But just to be aware of the potential of that, we don't take that as the object, but we include all of these, like layers of the onion, of the practice, the person, their suffering, our wish for them, and then that feeling of compassion for them. And so we'll sit in this way. I might do a few reminders. We'll sit in this way until I ring the bell. So I think I'll go ahead and get started. So welcome, everyone. And this is my third in a series of talks on the heart practices. Um, I'll be doing all four Brahma Viharas and then a few additional practices, the forgiveness meditation and one other as part of this series. And the Brahma Viharas, um, the word Brahma, the words Brahma Viharas means the divine abodes or the sublime abidings of the heart. And these are the practices in Buddhism that really purify the heart. The samatha, the focused attention practice, um, purifies the mind stream and vipassana, the open monitoring as it's known in neuroscience practice purifies our view. And this, these practices really help, um, purify the heart so that we can be with things as they are in the human condition. These practices really are, um, they cult, they help us cultivate the ability to be with whatever is arising without having to shut our, have the heart shut down or to see where it is shut down, uh, without being overwhelmed, without avoiding. And there's a lot of painful circumstances in the world today broadly in addition to all of the things that each of us and our loved ones um, encounter individually on the path. So uh, if we, one of the things I've noticed over my, you know, now like 16 years of teaching is that a lot of times people can have capacity doing Vipassana and or Samatha, but if they um, haven't worked with the heart material, uh, either those, the things that one is encountering in terms of our personality patterning in the other practices, when they get painful, people don't always have the capacity to stay with those things um, and find a way of soothing soothing that. Or there's just like this whole sector of our being that really has to do with the heart that hasn't been worked. 
So I really um, feel strongly that everybody should take a period of practice to do the Brahma Viharas, and they're really worth our our time and attention to explore deeply. And that that includes each individual Brahma Vihara, um, not just like Metta. Metta is a wonderful base Brahma Vihara, but really taking time to do each each one is really worthwhile. So it, they also cultivate, and with Karuna, it cultivates having an appropriate and authentic response to pain and suffering. Pain can happen without suffering, but usually in the human condition, the, the Buddha talked about pain being the first arrow, which really points to the first noble truth, that the way I often relate to the first noble truth is that pain is an inherent part of the human condition for every single human that's ever lived. Even the Buddha had back pain. He, His cousin tried to kill him. I mean, how many of us have had our cousin try to kill us, you know? That's a pretty big thing. And he had infighting in the Sangha. So, you know, if the Buddha didn't get off without having pain in his life, I don't think any of us can, you know, can expect that. So, um, but the second arrow then is suffering. What we add to the painful circumstances that are an inevitable part of the human experience through the way we um, orient to those experiences, we we add a second arrow. And that's where Buddhism really, um, that's the leverage point of Buddhism is can we do anything with the second arrow? Can we diminish the level of suffering that we're experiencing in reaction to the pain that is inherent as a part of life? So this practice helps us really be able to be in contact with pain in ourself and others in the world. And boy, have we had a lot of pain in the world to, to be with over these past few years. I think it's maybe been a higher load than some, some points in recent history. So how to be with it without illusion, without delusion, and also with the knowledge that we can't always fix it. A lot of times we can't fix it and we're really powerless to really do much of anything. How can we be with that? You know, sometimes if you look at the news, it's hard and the heart just wants to shut down because it's so, it's a lot. So this is where if we can't be with these kinds of things that are either personal or universal to everyone on the planet or a lot of people. Um, we can't be in the present moment. And so these practices, a lot of times they're people think, oh, these this was the fluffy practices. They're over there. But really in some ways these are the hardest practices out there because we're we're at we're at the same time we're creating a heart that is attuned and vulnerable, and yet there's so much strength in that capacity where ultimately when a heart is completely vulnerable to whatever's happening, it becomes invulnerable because it doesn't matter what the conditions are, we can be with it. You know, it's kind of a paradox, actually, that these practices open the heart and make us in a way more tender. And yet 
they also cultivate a real capacity of strength to be with the pain of the human condition, whether that's personal or impersonal. So they're very, um, really very robust practices when we really do them as they're intended and do them with depth. So as with all the Brahma Viharas, there can be real tendency, especially with this particular one, to think that we're doing the compassion practice so that the other person, like the main reason of doing it is for the other person, that I'm doing this to actually reduce their suffering, that somehow me having these intentions is going to um, reduce their suffering. and. You know, there are things like studies on remote prayer that show that there may be some actual scientific basis. And when we are praying for somebody or sending them loving kindness or um, compassion, that there may be an effect. But as a practice, as a technical practice, this is being done to purify our own hearts so that when these when we're with our friend, who is having some painful circumstance or ourselves, we can actually stay there and be present and tolerate the discomfort of that painful circumstance that maybe our friend is encountering that isn't going to get better. Sometimes it will get better and we can do something, but this is really about being able to stay present to it without having to leave ourselves or shut down. So it's not really about the other person and fixing them. It's about increasing our own capacity to um, to stay with it and not have to shut down or leave or be overwhelmed. Also, I want to say this is not Tonglen. So in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a practice called Tonglen that especially relates to the compassion practice to Karuna. Um, and Tonglen is um, actually, it's it's an advanced practice. It's considered very advanced in that we really need to be in a non-dual state where the ego self is dormant when we do Tonglen. And we're actually bringing the suffering into our own hearts and purifying it by not being identified with the me, by basically bringing that energetically into our own hearts and then exhaling a purified, um, wholesome state. So, I mean, what a blessing that there are practitioners out there actually doing Tonglen, and there are Tibetan practitioners and people who aren't Tibetan practitioners who are clear enough that they can take in the suffering of the world and purify it in their own heart. Um, but it's considered an advanced practice in Tibetan Buddhism. And like my teacher, Sopni Rinpoche, I was at a retreat once when he was talking about Tonglen and somebody said, um, if I do Tonglen for my friend that has cancer, what if I get cancer? And he said, then you're doing it right. So this tells you, in his view, the seriousness of doing Tonglen. I mean, it wasn't exactly a true statement because if we are completely outside of our, the ego self, then that wouldn't be happening. But you're, you were really in Tonglen taking it in on behalf of that person or the world. So, um, so 
the Brahma Viharas, the purpose of the practice is different than Tonglen. And um, it's not, Tonglen is really actually about taking away the other person's suffering and taking it on ourselves regardless of the consequences of that. So, um, so just to be clear that this is a practice for purifying our own heart. So in the, all of the Brahma Viharas, there is a, an object. So what is the object then of the Karuna compassion practice? With all of them, the object is a person or, a, you know, in, in equanimity, it gets a little bit broader, but, um, with the others, it's a person, it's some condition that a person is in. And in this case, it's a person who is suffering, who is in pain, has a painful circumstance and potentially also has the second arrow of suffering. It could be that the person is in a painful circumstance and isn't suffering. We could also do compassion practice for them in that case. Um, But there's something painful happening for ourselves or another person, and that is known as the proximate cause or the object. So um, that's, I talked about in the in the beginning of the meditation period with the brown viharas, I'm really starting to see it as like an onion with layers. So it's a little co- more complex, way more complex than something like Anapanasati where we're just with the breath. Um, so the person and their, their suffering or pain is the actual object. So that's what we want to stay with the whole time. We never leave our object when we're, with the practice and, and these are in the Samatha category. So these are considered concentration practices, even though they're a lot more complicated than something like the mindfulness of breathing. Um, and they do, they can potentially lead to deep concentration and the, and the stages of concentration that could lead up to what's known as jhana. So just to say that they are um, they are in that category. And so those always have a really specific object that we don't leave. We stay with that object the whole time. So in this person, in this case, it's the person and their suffering. And then the next layer out is our, our wishes for them, our intention. And so this is where the phrases come in. Um, and The phrases often when I hear the practice taught or when people are coming to me to work with me and have get some mentoring or guidance, um, they will have taken the the phrases as the object. So now the phrases have become the object instead of the actual object, which is a person's situation. So all the Brahma Viharas, they're really designed to give us what we need to respond to just about any situation in the human condition. So that is always the object is some situation in the human condition. And if the heart is open, then really we can be with everything in the human condition and have one of the four Brahma Viharas be a way that our heart can stay open. So that's what we're cultivating. So in this case, the phrases are just designed to help us incline towards the actual feeling of compassion. So for this, there's traditional phrases. And I I have a chart that um, I think, Terry, did that get posted or is it on my website? Um, It is on my website, but I can certainly send it and it could get posted on the IMT website as well. Um, 
But I have a chart that has all four Brahm Viharas and the phrases and what the object is and, and all of that. It's a really handy reference. So the traditional phrases then, I'll, I'll give the traditional and then some alternates. The traditional phrase in Buddhism for compassion is, may this good person be freed from suffering. So that's the traditional phrase. And that's, you know, fine if that feels right to you. One of the nice things about the Brahm Viharas and about this is that we can customize the phrases. So it's really important to have a phrase that feels right to you for that situation. So, like, there's a lot of situations where we still may wish for them to be freed from it, but we really know that this is not a circumstance they're going to be freed from. You know, like maybe if somebody's has a relationship that's ended or if they have a health issue that is not going to get better or, um, you know, a financial setback or loss of a job. You know, there's a lot of situations in the human condition that aren't going to get better. They can be freed from their suffering. So in all cases, they could be freed from their suffering. So anyway, so some alternate phrases then are may may you or may I be free from your suffering. Um, I care about your pain. That's another one that I, I like if it's someone else. Like just feeling into our own caring. Um, may you or may I find peace. So this is a way to wish for the person to find peace even in the face of you know, the loss of a loved one or something that isn't going to be reversed. May I open to this pain with tenderness or may you open to this pain with tenderness. So, you know, this is an intention if we can see somebody's really avoiding, you know, or lost in delusion about something. This is a wish that might you know, feel right for situations like that. May I find a way to be okay with this pain or let go of this pain? Or may you find a way to be okay with this pain or let go of this pain? So these are all, you know, options and you are welcome to find your own phrases. I've heard a lot of good phrases that people have you know, developed in, in the compassion practice that really fit for that particular situation. So it's, it's really makes a difference if you can be in touch with one that really means something to you and that is appropriate for a particular person or yourself or a particular situation. So when, so then we have the person, we have the phrase, and the phrase is a support, so it's not a mantra. It's not there to replace the object. It is a support of being in touch with our caring and our wishes for the person. So just like with insomata, we have with the breathing, we have counting as a support that is not there to replace the object. And with Vipassana, we have noting as a support, but the words don't replace our contact with the actual phenomena that are arising that we're noting. With the Brahma Viharas, the words don't replace our contact with the person suffering, the person and their pain or suffering, but they're just a support. 
So sometimes the words can even drop, you know, especially if we're doing what, like one person for a long time, we may get to the point where the words just are too much and, and they can actually drop. So it's fine if that feels right for you to use. These are supports. So they're to be used until they're not needed and brought back as needed. And that's fine. So each of the Brahma Viharas has what's known as a near enemy and a far enemy. The near enemy is something that kind of looks like the Brahma Vihara but isn't. So it's really good to be aware of what those are and, you know, watch for slipping into those. And with compassion, one that's really easy to slip into sometimes, especially when we get to people we don't know as well um, when we go through the list of different beings and categories of beings is pity. So sometimes we can, especially again, if it's somebody we don't know um, very well, we can get into pity where it's, there's a sense of almost uh, a little bit of maybe superiority over the person or, or, um, it, it can feel a little hierarchical in some way. Um, so pity would be something to watch out for. Uh, righteous, righteous anger is another one where we're in touch. Say that there's injustice that's happening. You know, when we get into a lot of issues around diversity and inclusion where people are suffering because of injustice and oppression, it's very easy to have righteous anger come up or like I was on my retreat, there was somebody who was a climate activist. And when we look at what's happening with the climate crisis, it's very easy to get into righteous anger when we see the suffering from climate change and, and the suffering. It's very easy to go into righteous anger. So that, if that's arising, that's not the same as compassion. It might be in some ways we may feel very justified in the righteous anger, but it is actually, if we feel it, it is actually a um, defilement. Anger is a defilement. So we can have strength in the face of things like oppression and power and um, I've been using an example lately when I'm trying to point to what this is. We can have that, and this is something we can feel into that isn't righteous anger, but that is um, allows for a certain kind of strength in the face of something like injustice or oppression, um, which is the movie Gandhi. And there's a scene, this is my memory of it, and I really want to watch the movie again to make sure my memory's right. But, you know, even if my memory's a little bit off, you get the, the point, you can feel it, which is there's a scene in the movie Gandhi where Ben Kingsley plays Gandhi, who I think he won, won an Academy Award for it. It's a really amazing movie where the British men, you know, the, the British or the British have been occupying India and the Indian men um, 
the Indian people were trying to get the British to leave and they wouldn't leave. And there's a scene in the movie where the Indian men, they come and there's like hundreds or maybe even thousands of them. And they are really trying to get the British to leave and they're not going to match them with weapons and firepower. You know, that's probably never going to be an option for them. But there's so many men there and they get in the single file line and the British have said, we're going to kill you if you come here. And so the men are in a line and the British soldiers just like kill one and the man drops and the next man comes up to the front and they kill him with a bayonet and he drops. And the men just kept coming and they were willing to die for this and some, some did die. And eventually the British realized we can't fight this. We can't just keep killing these men who are coming up in line and be willing to just stand in their truth. And they gave up and the British left. And that is a kind of strength and power that isn't distorted. It's not doing harm, but it's standing in the strength and power of their convictions. And that's the kind of strength and power we can have in the face of something like injustice and oppression and discrimination um, that isn't righteous anger. So there is an alternative to righteous anger that is undistorted, that isn't a defilement, that is actually a much better place to confront oppression and discrimination and injustice than anger, which is basically, you know, coming out of the ego and it's distorted and, and it's not going to be as effective as coming out of a true, a place of true strength and power. So anyway, righteous anger is something to look for in, uh, as a near enemy and then fear also, you know, when we see things like pandemics, where all of us could be affected and have been affected by that. And there's so much suffering. Just the millions and millions of people, not only who've died, but who've lost loved ones, who have long COVID, who have other effects from the pandemic. You know, we can go into fear when we're in touch with that kind of pain and suffering because it just feels so overwhelming and, and, um, and uncontrollable in a lot of ways. I mean, there are things we can do with, with it, but, you know, we're right back to the first noble truth again, that pain is a part of the human condition for every human. And um, so fear can make the heart shut down when we're in touch with pain like that and at that scale. Um so these are all things that aren't compassion, but that when we're in touch with pain can come up that at least are kind of close. And then the far enemy, which we normally don't see when it's somebody we're close to, but we can see when we get to, say, the difficult person, somebody we actively dislike or in, in the traditional text they called it the hated person. So, um, you know, we might kind of like it when the hated person's having a hard time, when our least favorite politician's having a hard time and having misfortune. We might revel in it a little bit. We might enjoy it, you know, 
And it can be real tempting to do that, especially these days. Um, so, you know, it's just something not, not an opportunity for the superego or the inner critic to beat us up, but it's just a place to be conscious when we're doing the work on this practice and we're going through the beings, the categories of beings, just to be, you know, be conscious of that as a possible thing that can, that it can bring up. So then the sequence of beings that we do, so all of the Brahma Viharas have a sequence. And I really recommend that if we're going to do this practice as a practice to cultivate our own, our own strong and tender heart, that we, we do it for a period of time. Like, you know, sometimes people will do a week on each Brahma Vihara or a month like in their daily practice on each Brahma Vihara. And that gives us really enough time to work through the categories. I don't feel that sitting, doing a half hour in a daily practice is enough time to go through all the categories. I mean, we're just skipping, skipping, skipping. You know, we're not really, we're covering a lot of people, but we're not actually working with our own obscurations of the heart when we're doing that. And also going to all beings, there's a way it can feel really satisfying and there is something beautiful about going to all beings, but it's so impersonal that, um, that it doesn't really work the places in our own heart that might be blocked. So I really would encourage if you're interested in doing any of the Brahma Viharas or all of them to like, You know, if you were going to do a week on Karuna on this practice, you could do one category a day and just pick one person to do the whole 30 minutes. So if we're doing these practices, we really need to plan ahead of time who we're going to work with. Um, And it's hard, you know, if we're spending all the time trying to figure out who to work with, we're not really, you know, giving it a chance to deepen and to feel the places where our heart is free and the places where our heart might not be as free. So we start then with the suffering person, with someone we know who's suffering. And a lot of times when people are doing this practice, it's, it's because someone you know and care about is suffering and it's a way to be in contact with that where we're also cultivating our own, you know, our own strong and tender heart. Um, so we start with the suffering person and then we go to ourself. So we're always working from easiest to hardest in the Brahma Viharas. We start with the easiest and work up to the hardest. Then we go to ourself and then usually we can find some place in our life where there's some pain. We may not be suffering a lot, but you know, a lot of times we are suffering a lot and we may even be the suffering person. And this is a wonderful practice to do when we are having something hard happen. And a lot of people don't think to do compassion for themselves. You know, we're so hard on ourselves. A lot of times if something isn't going well in our life, what we're doing is we're beating ourselves up. So even if we see that we're beating ourselves up, that can be a time to do compassion for ourselves. If we're finding self-judgment and self-criticism, that is a wonderful time to do compassion for ourselves. And it can really soothe our own nervous system to do compassion for ourselves instead of going in another direction that might be closed in the heart to ourselves. 
So self is next. Then benefactor is the next category. Somebody who's been really supported our growth where it's not a complicated relationship. Might even be somebody we don't know, like the Dalai Lama, or could be a teacher or a mentor or somebody who has just been really supportive of us where it's not complicated. We don't want to necessarily pick a family member. And then friend would be the next category. So this is somebody we care about where it could be more complicated, but we really, um, you know, could be a family member, could be a friend or a family. When we get into family, it's more complicated because we may see family members suffering and know that they could have done something different that, than what they did that got them into this painful place. You know, like what if we have a family member who has substance abuse issues? You know, it's hard sometimes if we've been through 10 cycles of this with that family member or family member who gets into difficult relationships or has financial, chronic financial problems, you know. So family members, it it can, and even close friends, it can get more complicated because maybe we saw them heading for this disaster. Maybe we even warned them and they still did it anyway. So that's where, you know, really being aware of the near and far enemies can be important because it gets complicated sometimes. So friend, friend or family member isn't always the easiest you know, we can wish for their well-being, but we can also see maybe a lot of complications as to how this thing happened, especially if it was something that maybe, you know, we think they could have made, you know, done something different. So friend is next, then neutral person. And neutral person, you know, we don't always know if a neutral person is suffering. So we might have to like think of a category of beings or beings who are suffering from, say, climate change, you know, or um, something where we're, it may not, it's better if we can pick a specific neutral person that's actually in our life that we have contact with, because then it makes it more real. So if you can't think of somebody like that, then we can have a more generic neutral person. And then we go to the difficult person, also known as the hated person in the old way of saying it. And and that, you know, this we also may not know them, but this is where somebody really hard to have compassion for, because maybe we feel that person has done harm. You know, like I remember the first time I heard somebody saying they were going to do compassion for the soldiers who were murdering others, like, you know, maybe the Russian soldiers who have committed even atrocities. You know, when we hear about some of the things that have happened in Ukraine, it's pretty hard to have compassion for the Russian soldiers sometimes, you know. But they're also acting out of their own delusion and ignorance and aversion and other things. They're acting their own conditioning out that have led them here. So it becomes more of a challenge when we work with a category like that or our least favorite politician who maybe is not is having some bad breaks. We might really enjoy that they're having some bad breaks, you know. So this is a category that gets harder 
where we can sometimes see the far enemy coming in. And um, we're not in choosing a difficult person like the examples I'm using. We're not condoning that person's behavior that's causing suffering. Again, this isn't a these practices aren't really even about the other person. They're about our own heart not being closed. So we can still feel that like our least favorite politician maybe needs to be stopped in their political endeavors, and we can still have compassion for their suffering. It doesn't say that we're condoning the harm they're doing. So that's not what this is about. And in giving and feeling compassion for them, what we're doing is we're also, we're seeing the place, like I've done this thing with the, the hand where, you know, this is our normal view of reality that we're all separate and so on. But when we see a deeper view of reality, we can see that we're not at the level of the ground of being, which we can know with our own awareness. We aren't separate from the people doing these things. And so it's an acknowledgement of non-separation from even the worst human on the planet. And I go back to Angulimala, who the Buddha encountered, who, you know, we all love the Angulimala story. The man was a serial killer. He had his victim's thumbs on a necklace that he wore. That's what the name Angulimala means, thumb necklace. The guy was wearing thumbs. You know, and the Buddha encountered him and, you know, who knows if he was going to try and kill the Buddha. And then Angulimala ended up becoming an arahant. The man was a serial killer. So, you know, the Buddha found a way to even get through to somebody like that. So, you know, Angulimala is a lot worse maybe than some of the people we could have in the in the difficult person category. So, um Anyway, there is a way to still have compassion, but not agree with what the person's doing. And then the last category is all being. So then we would include all the categories. But if we jump straight to all beings, we don't really get to work that category, you know, the, the category that might be harder. Maybe the neutral person's hard where it's hard to really feel anything because we don't know them. You know, you don't really know until you actually do the practice a little bit more deeply where the muscle might be weak or where we might slip into either the near enemy or the far enemy or just be, you know, not very engaged in it. Um, but ultimately, this is leading to the point where we can feel others suffering and the heart naturally can respond because we're not disconnected from they're suffering because our hearts open and can be sensitive to anybody's suffering, whether we know them or like them or not. So that's what we're cultivating here. And this can also, this practice where we get to the difficult person, sometimes it's somebody we who has been a friend that we've had a falling out with or a family member where there's resentments, where we're holding grudges, where, um, you know, we haven't forgiven somebody and maybe we, 
and even see their suffering in the situation that caused the disconnect from them. And this isn't to say that we're, we have to reconcile with them or anything, but there is a way if we can see even in the situation that caused the disruption in the relationship. A lot of times if we know someone and they did something like that, we do know what caused their behavior. We know their patterns even. It may still hurt us, the thing they did, and we're not saying it was a wise thing that they did, but there's a way that it heals our heart to be able to have that, you know, there's a universal human quality in suffering, and it is one of the things that actually connects us to all humans. And... um so that's another possibility is to do this practice for somebody that we've actually had a falling out with and that we can we can be in touch with the pain that's in them that may have caused their unskillful actions towards us even. So the Dalai Lama, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but um, it's one of my favorite quotes of the Dalai Lama's about this practice, about this whole category, but especially this one. And he said um, something like, love and compassion are not mere luxuries. They are essential for the continued survival of our species. So, you know, anyone, and really look around the world. We don't have to look too far to see that that's really true. We've got atomic weapons here. And a lot of countries now have them. So, you know, compassion and love are the things in human consciousness, among others, but they are some of the things that can actually change the consciousness on this planet to where the the level of conflict doesn't get escalated to that level. And every time we do a practice, any practice, I really believe that we, when we're thinning our own ego self, we are contributing directly to the collective of human consciousness. Every time we work on ourselves and our own obscurations, we are putting drops into the collective that offset harm that's happening and that that contribute in some way to the collective conscious com- coming up just a little, becoming a little bit less gross and a little bit less um, mired in the defilements and in delusion. So when we do these practices, it's really, it is having an effect even if we can't see it directly, it's it's benefiting. So any questions or comments on this or on anything? Yes, John. Um, I had the thought, hi, uh, I had the thought hi. today um, during your talk, if the, um, <clears throat> if it's not about the other person, and we're looking at benefactors, can they be someone who <clears throat> is no longer alive? If it's about ourselves? Yeah, well, technically, they say the Brahmavihara should be, a, well, for for Jhana, I'll say this. For Jhana, it is said that it needs to be somebody who's living. I'm not sure why that is, 
but that is the instruction for jhana. So sometimes the instruction just for the brahmini hearts generally is that they should be alive. But I think if we're doing it more for the purification of heart, I think it can be somebody who's deceased. Because that's just working it on our side, you know, like, like a family member, you know, you are, you are freeing yourself and, and, and so yes, I, I believe that that is completely um, worthwhile. Yeah, good question. I hadn't really thought about that. Other questions or comments? Or if anybody's done this practice and wants to share some experience. Yes, Amy. Um, do you think you could talk a little bit about, so if you're, when you're meditating and let's say a far or near enemy comes in, what's the best thing to do right there? Oh. Pity or here's, you know, I'm starting to revel in the misfortune. What do you do? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so there's a couple of ways that we can work with, with those. And, um, oh, I'm having a weird thing with my computer. Um, so there's a couple of ways that we can work with the near and far enemies or other things that could come up. And the, the first, uh, sort of line of defense with all of these is to just come Due to technical difficulties, the last portion of this talk was not recorded. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.